Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it to them with the well-taught lessons of how they in their lifetime must do the same. And if you and I don't do this, then you and I may well spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. Welcome back, everyone, to Patriot Coalition Live. I'm Jason Morocek. Thanks for joining us today. Our goal on this podcast is to create a timeless resource to teach about the U.S. Constitution and the proper role of government, the importance of America's Judeo-Christian heritage, and how to defend against threats to our republic. So before we get started in today's topic, I wanted to talk to you about something that you can do today to begin rooting out one of the major sources of corruption in America. This source of corruption is what we call the three-headed beast, which is mainstream media, big tech, and big business. Now, these mega corporations are actively undermining our liberties through censorship, canceling, and destroying livelihoods because they don't like dissent. And they don't like people who share truths, which threaten their power. Now, as you probably know, earlier this year, Google, Apple, Amazon Web Services, among others, canceled Parler or stopped giving access to Parler. Social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter regularly suspend accounts when they don't like their posts. So why continue to send your money to Amazon when they are canceling and censoring those who stand up for liberty? When you can spend your hard-earned money with freedom-loving companies who share your values and your principles. A company like conservativeeconomy.com. Now, conservativeeconomy.com has tons of companies to shop from with over 3,700 categories of products. So chances are you're going to find what you're looking for at conservativeeconomy.com. Now, if you shop at a business that you love and you think that that business might be a great fit at conservativeeconomy.com, go to our contact page and let us know. And if you own a business, go to our sell here link at conservativeeconomy.com and tell us about your business. Again, that website is conservativeeconomy.com. Please check us out today. Okay, so let's get into today's episode. The title of today's episode is Article 2, Section 1, Presidential Term and Elections. This is Part 2. So we're going to be continuing our discussion of Article 2, which, as you know, is all about the executive branch of government led by the President of the United States. Uh, So Clause 3, the first one we're going to cover today, is rather long. It has to be because it describes precisely how the president was elected. I say was because we passed the 12th Amendment in 1804, which superseded some of the original language. And we're going to talk about that more when we get into the amendments. Now, we talked in the last episode about the presidential electors and how they are appointed by the state legislatures. Well, Clause 3, as amended, describes the process for how the voting process works, you know, specifically, not just in generalities. Okay, so let's dig into it. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing at one time because it uh, it would be counterproductive. So I'm going to break it up into clauses, uh, you know, subclauses, really, sentences within this clause. Okay, so here it is. Article 2, Section 1, Clause 3. And it says, quote, the electors shall meet in their respective states and vote by ballot for two persons of whom one at least shall not be an inhabitant of the same state with themselves. Okay, so this is saying that each elector votes for two people 
and one of them cannot live in the same state as them. So it avoids favoritism. You know, this was intended to make sure that, you know, if you've got people running from your state, obviously, or in many cases, you're going to vote for the people um, that, that are from your state. You have more affinity for them. You know them better. Um, and early on in, in our nation's history, um, there was this, you know, kind of rivalry, and it was set up that way between the states and the central government. Um, and people wanted to make sure that, you know, the, the electors weren't just going to vote for their state. And so they included this requirement that said that one of the people that they vote for uh, has to be a resident of a different state. Okay, so, so we've got the electors casting ballots for two people. This is, again, the original language, <clears throat> two people, and one of them has to be from another state. Okay, so the next um, sentence. And they shall make a list, they being the electors, and they shall make a list of all persons voted for and of the number of votes for each, which list they shall sign and certify and transmit sealed to the seat of government of the United States directed to the president of the Senate. Okay, so this is essentially saying that the electors, after they have all cast their votes, then they will tally them up. You know, here's all the people that voted. Here's how many uh, votes each one of them received. Because remember, every elector is voting for two people in the original language. And once they're done, they just have to sign it. You know, all the electors have to sign it. They have to certify it and transmit it in a sealed package or envelope to the president of the Senate. Okay. So then the next clause, quote, the president of the Senate shall, in the presence of the Senate and House of Representatives, open all the certificates and the votes shall then be counted. The person having the greatest number of votes shall be president. If such number be a majority of the whole number of electors appointed. Okay. So once the president of the Senate receives the votes, then he, uh, to make sure that the, the process is transparent, he has to essentially read all, open all the certificates from all the different states and uh, he has to count them up in the presence of everybody from the House and the Senate to make sure it's transparent. Okay, now um, th there is a, a condition in here. If one person receives a majority of the votes, meaning greater than or equal to 50%, uh, then that person is the president and that's where it stops. So the next section uh, talks about what if that doesn't happen? So it says, quote, and if there be more than one who have such majority and have an equal number of votes, then the House of Representatives shall immediately choose by ballot one of them for president. Okay, so now what if there's a 50-50 uh, tie? There's uh, an equal number of electoral votes. Again, we have to remember that it, there wasn't always 538. You know, with fewer states, there were fewer elector, uh, electoral uh, electors. So what if you have an equal number of electors and 50% of them vote for one candidate and 50% vote for another, and then there's an exact tie? Well, that's what this, um, this sentence is telling us. It's saying if they are, then the House of Representatives gets to cast the tie-breaking vote, so to speak, collectively. So the House of Representatives now votes for one of those two candidates, and whoever receives um, the majority will win the election as president. Okay, so that's good. But what if, you know, there's so many candidates and so many electors vote for various candidates that no one receives a majority? 
Well, that, that's where the next part of the clause comes in. It says, quote, and if no person have a majority, then from the five highest on the list, the, the said house shall in the like manner choose the president. But in choosing the president, the votes shall be taken by states, the representation from each state having one vote. A quorum for this purpose shall consist of a member or members from two thirds of the states and a majority of all the states shall be necessary to a choice. Okay. So this one was, a, this, this section was a little bit longer, but I included more because it's important that we understand. So if there's no candidate receives at least 50% of the votes, meaning a majority, now the house will vote for president, but they're only gonna choose the top five candidates on the list. The, the, the five candidates for president who received the top five number of votes. Okay, and they also throw in a couple of requirements here. Before these votes in the house can take place, um, we have to, they have to ensure that their that votes are taken by state, not by individuals. So um, if you have, if you have 500 or 435 members of the house that we do today, you, there's not 535, uh, sorry, 435 votes. It's a one state, one vote. So there's only gonna be 50, 50 votes. Okay, so not everyone votes. The delegations as a state cast their vote. Okay, so the second requirement for this is that the, a quorum has to be met. So what is a quorum? A quorum is basically the required number of electors to conduct the vote. So um, in this case, they, the, the delegates to the Constitutional Convention said that two thirds of the states have to be present in order for one of these votes to take place. Today, that's 33 states. So if, there, if this, um, clause of the constitution was activated because no one received a majority of the votes, then at least 33 states would have to be in attendance for the vote in order for them to take that vote. And of course the winner must have a majority. So of the 50 states, um, there must be 26 of them must cast their, their vote for one candidate. Okay, so, and then the last part of this clause, again, super long clause says, quote, in every case, after the choice of the president, the person having the greatest number of votes of the electors shall be the vice president. But if there should remain two or more who have equal votes, the Senate shall choose from them by ballot the vice president. Okay, so again, going back to that original list that the president of the Senate uh, unseals and reads out, the candidate, again, in the original language, the candidate for president that has the second most number of votes becomes the vice president. Now, it's not the way we do it today. Again, we'll talk more about that when we talk about the 12th Amendment. Uh, and the other, the other part of this clause is that a tie in, in the case of, let's say the, the number one person has 50% um, uh, you know, of the votes, but the next two people have the same number of votes. Well, then the Senate actually gets to decide who is the vice president. Okay, so that covers clause three, which talks about the, the process for how the presidential electors cast their votes and how they're read and how the votes are determined um, in, in the various cases of, of no majority, ties and so forth in the original language. So the, the other clause that we're gonna talk about today is clause four. So this is article one, sorry, article two, section one, clause four. And it says, quote, the Congress may determine the time of choosing the electors and the day on which they shall give their votes, which day shall be the same throughout the United States. Okay, 
So first of all, the, the Congress now has the authority to determine when the electors uh, are appointed and when those electors cast their votes. Um, and they also provide for, they can't have different days for different states or, or regions of the country. The day has to be the same throughout the United States um, for both of those. When the electors are appointed, remember we talked about that last, uh, last episode, that the state legislatures get to appoint those electors. So the day that they are appointed and the day that those electors cast their votes, they, um, so let me say that again. So when all the, the electors are appointed happens on the same day across the country. And then separately, the day that all those electors cast their votes must happen on the same day as well. And so Congress has the it, Congress constitution gives Congress the authority to make those determinations on, on the time and day uh, that they can do those two things. And Congress has done this. So um, if you're interested in looking this up, this is from the Title III United States Code Section 1, which tells us when Congress has decided that uh, every uh, elector is appointed by their state legislature. And that day is election day. It's the same day that uh, you and I cast our votes uh, for president, which don't necessarily count as votes for the president, that we've talked about, um, but that same day, uh, presidential election day, is when those electors are appointed. And that's the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. So the electors, once they are appointed by their states, then their vote for president uh, happens on the Monday after the second Wednesday in December. So, you know, basically the almost the, the first Tuesday in November, first Tuesday following the first Monday is when they're appointed. And then uh, the next month on the first Wednesday after the, uh, sorry, the first Monday after the second Wednesday in December, that's when they actually cast the vote for president of the United States. And that's from uh, Title III United States Code Section 7 is where Congress has, um, has uh, made their law about that. And so I thought this was interesting. Um, this actually, I'm going to read you a section of Federal 68, which is written by Alexander uh, Hamilton, uh, talking about <laughs> um, this whole process and when the electors are chosen and so forth. I thought this gave a pretty good understanding of, of some of the dangers and why they thought that this was necessary. So in Federal 68, Hamilton says this, quote, they have not made the appointment of the president to depend on any pre-existing bodies. They would be the delegates of the Constitutional Convention. So again, it says they have not made the appointment of the president to depend on any pre-existing bodies of men who might be tampered with beforehand to prostitute their votes. But they have referred it in the first instance to an immediate act of the people of America to be exerted in the choice of persons for the temporary and sole purpose of making the appointment. So Hamilton here is uh, saying that, look, if there is an existing body of people that are going to cast this vote for president, they are susceptible to bribery, uh, you know, cajoling, any sort of threats of force uh, in order to, to vote for the right person. But if they don't know who that's going to be because they're going to be up for election, the same day that the uh, America casts their vote on election day. So those candidates won't know who's going to be the ones casting the vote. Um, and so that, I thought that was pretty important and to, to point out uh, why it was, why the, the delegates to the constitutional convention felt it was important to remove the vote for president, both from 
the legislature from the uh, Congress, which is what was originally proposed. A lot of people thought the legislature ought to, in Congress, ought to choose the president. But as we can now think about it, that would just make the executive branch subordinate to the legislative branch. And we don't want that. It violates the separation of uh, separation of the different branches of government, which is important in a republic in any, any free country. Okay. So that covers um, clauses three and four of article two, section one, talking about the original process that elect, presidential electors went through in order to elect the president, as well as how those electors, or I should say when those electors are appointed and when they cast their actual vote for president. Um, now, in doing my uh, research for this episode, I came across a very interesting um, snippet from the Constitutional Convention, where the delegates, uh, specifically uh, James Madison, um, <laughs> had a little bit of foreshadowing, I'll just call it. So, you know, today, um, you know, in at the end of, you know, the beginning of August, essentially, when you will be listening to this, August of 2021, you know, considering our current circumstances, this is what Madison had to say, um, you know, almost two and a half centuries ago. So this is what it says, quote, Mr. Madison thought it indispensable that some provision should be made for defending the community, the community, he means the, uh, the nation, against the incapacity, negligence, or perfidy of the chief magistrate. So the chief magistrate there, he's talking about the president of the United States. So he's saying some provision should be made for defending the, the nation against incapacity, negligence, or perfidy of the chief magistrate. He goes on to say, quote, the limitation of the period of his service was not a sufficient security, meaning the four-year term. He might lose his capacity after his appointment. He might pervert his administration into a scheme of peculation or oppression. Peculation is basically the act, practice, or crime of defrauding the public by appropriating to one's own use the money or goods entrusted to one's care for management or disbursement. It's like embezzlement of public money or goods. And he goes on to say, quote, he might betray his trust to foreign powers. Uh, I know many of you are thinking, wow, this guy is a, a, a sage. Uh, he knows what's going to happen before it's going to happen. Well, he also understands human nature. But yeah, absolutely. Today, we are seeing that in spades. In the, the current administration, um, the, the traitor in chief, uh, traitor Joe, as, as some call him, um, you know, whether it's you know, prostituting himself to, to China, you know, allowing him his influence to be peddled by his son, uh, his capacity and his mental acuity and capacity uh, are obviously uh, very concerning. So it was, I found it interesting when I read this in my research about how spot on Madison was in, uh, in arguing for some sort of provision um, to, to protect us against these things. Okay, so that wraps up uh, the, the body of what we're talking about today in this episode. Um, so just to kind of summarize, you know, this episode, we began discussing clauses three and four of Article 2, Section 1. Clause 3 establishes the original process for choosing our president. And again, uh, this has changed. You know, in 1804, we passed an amendment, the 12th Amendment, that changes some of the language uh, and causes, you know, the 
original language to be superseded. And we'll talk about that in a future episode. Clause four tells us that Congress gets to choose the day that the presidential electors are appointed by their state legislatures, which is again, the first Tuesday after the first Monday of November. And when they cast their vote for president, which is the first Monday after the second Wednesday of December. So in an election year. So there's the November election when they're appointed. And then in December, those presidential electors cast their votes to make it official. So again, as a reminder, these electors elect the president, not you and me, not the general public, unless you are a presidential elector. Um, and, and the reason is to reduce the amount of corruption in the elections. So candidates cannot know who's going to be electing them in advance. Okay, so that covers it for today. Uh, if you would like to support us, please go to patriotcoalition.live, uh, sorry, patriotcoalitionlive.com slash support. Your support is a huge help to us and very much appreciated. And if you are not already a regular subscriber, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts at places like iHeartRadio and Spotify and others. Uh, and thanks again, everyone. We will see you here next time. Take care.